stand if you would. Say Merry Christmas to someone around you and tell them they're the best, you're the best. To which they will respond, how can I be the best if you're the best? All right, not too long now, not too long now. (laughs) Sit down, get a Bible open, Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas really, it is the season now, Luke chapter 23 beginning in verse 50. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Fascinating statement about the Sabbath right there. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, And are you the only visitor? (laughs) This is a great question to ask Jesus, right? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he is known to them how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Father, we just need your help. We need your help to have faith in your truth. We need your help to have faith in your dear Son and what your words tell us about our dear Lord Jesus, about him being crucified and risen again. Your church needs your help this morning to see why all of this matters. Father, to not be slow of heart to believe, to remember and not forget day by day that we would look upon Christ, His death and His raising again and see something very different in this life than the world sees and very different things in the life to come. I pray, Father, that You would help me and help us to exalt the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, alive today and forevermore. In Your Son's name, Amen. Amen. Well, um, one of the charges that critics have leveled against the resurrection of Jesus is that he didn't really die. He didn't really die. And uh, one of the you know, lies that's long been told about Jesus is, well, he was, he was just close enough to death, or you know, he was comatose, or some such thing like that, and they put him in a tomb. And so let's just start there. Let's just start with this. Jesus really died. Jesus really died. And that's where we're at. And really, if you go back to uh, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the scripture says, And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, note the scene. Right There's There's a crowd of people, many of whom know who Jesus is, many of whom have followed Jesus. Others maybe there just for the morning and lament. Others there just because there was something big going down in Jerusalem. But there's a crowd of people there. I mean, that's what verse 27 says. Remember, and there followed him a great multitude of the people. 
and of women who are mourning and lamenting for him. So there's a, there's a multitude of people seeing what's taking place um, at the cross. There's a multitude of people who see uh, Jesus breathe his last. And uh, what does it say in verse 48? And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. In other words, a whole crowd of people saw Jesus breathe their last, his last. And a whole crowd of people responded the way you would respond having seen such things. But um, it's not only the crowd, you also have the centurion. The centurion who's standing there watches him breathe his last, watches the way he gives up his life. You know, he dies differently than the criminals, John's Gospel reports. In John's Gospel, the scene where Jesus actually dies on the cross, the two criminals have their legs broken, um, which was fairly normal for someone who was dying by crucifixion so that they could not push themselves up to take a breath anymore. But at that moment, and John records that Jesus was already dead, so they didn't break his legs to fulfill the prophecy that not one of his bones will be broken. So the centurion watches Jesus give up his life uniquely to um, other crucifixion victims. The centurion, who, who knows how many crucifixion deaths he's seen, but he's probably not a poor judge of the nature of what death looks like when someone breathes their last. And not just anyone in the crowds. You have Jesus' mother Mary. You have the beloved disciple John. Right? Remember in uh, the Gospel of John where Jesus says, you know, behold your mother. And John takes Mary, the mother of Jesus, to his own home, the text says. And then you have Joseph of Arimathea. Right? This is, this is Joseph of Arimathea. This is in John chapter 3. Jesus preached that he must, or sorry, sorry, sorry. You have Joseph of Arimathea, who is a member of the council who doesn't actually consent to whatever the Sanhedrin is doing. We don't know how much he fought against it, but he knew something was wrong. Right? And we don't know much about Joseph of Arimathea, except here, we don't know how much he was willing to let what he thought about Jesus be known up to this point. But at this point, he is completely willing to forsake all of his reputation amongst the council, amongst the Jewish council and the Jewish leaders, you know, at complete risk of his own life, complete risk of his own reputation to go to Pilate and request his body so that he could give him an honorable burial. And so, Joseph of Arimathea takes him down and wraps his body in linen clothing. Lays him in a tomb that, there's these little details like the tomb is cut in stone. You know, it's, we we tend to think of it like, you know, a a dirt ground and then cut out of stone because that's what the picture is that we've seen, but more likely, it was actually a, a tomb completely surrounded by rock. And it's an important detail, because if it's completely surrounded by rock, then no one can say, well, 
Jesus was just nearly dead and, you know, there was an escape hatch somewhere. He dug himself out. There was a secret exit. It's not like that. It's just surrounded by rock and he's laid in there and a stone is rolled over. So if Jesus didn't really die, none of the witnesses saw correctly. The centurion didn't see correctly. Joseph of Arimathea failed to detect any remaining sign of life as he wrapped him in linen clothing and as he laid him in a tomb cut in stone. Even the soldiers who were going to break his legs if necessary made the judgment call that he was already dead so they pierced his side. And blood and water poured out, John records. So if Jesus didn't really die, everyone is wrong. Everyone. And not just everyone, but how often does the scripture recount the nature of Jesus' death? How much does it talk about the fact that he died? Scripture itself is wrong. If Jesus didn't really die... Everything is wrong. Everything is wrong. But this kind of stuff, this kind, these kind of ideas that Jesus didn't really die, this is just the, the way hardened man in his unbelief thinks. This is what sinners do to not have to have to do with a risen Lord Jesus Christ who died and was raised. This is what materialistic Westerners, this is what materialistic Westerners who are completely against anything miraculous, concludes that they never have to do with Jesus. This is rebellious sinners pressing down the knowledge of God that they have, so they never have to deal with Jesus. But the truth is, I I can't imagine a greater historical record of any ancient figure that actually records in anywhere near as much detail as the death of Jesus. Go and try to find it. Go and try to find the death of a historical figure in as much detail as we have in the scriptural record, which is historical record, in the historical record as there is of the death of Jesus. Jesus really died. I mean, I was, an, I was an atheist until I realized there was no getting around the fact that Jesus died and rose again. And that had implications for my life to actually rescue me from my sin and to make me right with God again. And if Jesus didn't really die, if he didn't die, you know, it's a hoax. If Jesus didn't really die, there is no payment of death for your sins or mine. For sins that are deserving of death. If on the cross he didn't really die, there is no reconciliation with God again. None. There is no peace with God. There is no walking with God. There is no promise of Jesus Christ with us even to the end of the age. No eternal life. No heaven, no new creation, no 
only condemnation and a fearful expectation of judgment because we are still in our sins before the one true and living God. And if he didn't die, there is no resurrection. A sick man got better, a, a bruised man, you know, wounds healed up. But there's no resurrection. There's no death to life. But Jesus was both really dead and Jesus was really raised. So I'm going to do two things about the resurrection. Quick, quick proof from the text to you and, and then I want, you to, I want to prove it and then I want you to treasure it. I want, you to, I want to prove it and then I want you to treasure it. You realize the resurrection is something you apply. The resurrection isn't just something that just happened in history that you kind of stare at from a distance. The resurrection is full of truths that you treasure and live. And so first, I just want quick proof of it. I could give more, but uh, I won't this morning. The first thing, did you know there's 11 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in Scripture? I'm not going to go through them all, but did you know that? 11 post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in Scripture to small groups, to large groups, on the road to Emmaus, to the disciples, to the women, to crowds of over 500, 1 Corinthians says. Eleven post-resurrection appearances in the biblical narrative. And just as much as it's true that um, there is no historical record that so much argues for the fact that Jesus really died, there is no historical record so abundant and bountiful in proving that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So 11 post-resurrection appearances in the biblical narrative. It's also true that if Jesus was not raised, then the only other conclusion is that he's a liar. That's the only other conclusion. You can't, you can't choose some middle ground for Jesus based on your own kind of thought opinion of him. You have to deal with what does Scripture say. And what Scripture says is exactly what the angels said. What Jesus said is what the angels said. Hey, remember? Remember what He told you. He was going to suffer. He was going to be crucified. And on the third day, He was going to rise from the dead. And if He didn't, He's a liar. He's a false prophet. Nothing that He says is true. And everything about this Christianity thing is completely worthless. And you all are to be pitied that you show up here believing a stupid lie. Right? There's no middle ground. You, can't, you don't get to sit back and go, well, Jesus was a nice guy. No, he wasn't. He was a liar if he didn't raise from the dead. You don't get to sit back and go, well, Jesus really was a pretty good example. You know, He's not a lot different than maybe um, Gandhi. No, he's a liar and he's a false prophet if he didn't rise from the dead. You have to decide what you're going to do with the risen Jesus doing exactly what he said he would do. That he would suffer and die and on the third day be raised. And he was. I think the greatest proof of <laughs> in, in the resurrection, isn't it fascinating that what human writer would write this purely human writer, purely fictional tale, would write a story like this? Here's all of Jesus' closest apostles. They're the ones who heard 
that He was going to die and rise from the dead. They heard it more than anyone. And then the, the message comes to him that he actually is in fact risen from the dead. And they're like, no way. No way. I mean, no one would write the story like that. All right? These words seem to them an idle tale. This is the stuff of pure fiction. Well, these women are really at it now. I mean, <laughs> they did not believe them. They did not believe them. Right, but then there's Peter who has this like spark. He's like, what if it is true? <laughs> you know, so he makes a beeline for the tomb because he's got to find out for himself. He's got to see it. And Peter is kind of like the, always the one who's making the beeline for, uh, uh, kind of has that, that spark to just make a beeline for, you know, jumping out of the boat and heading to the shore. And he's got to find out. And he went home marveling at what had happened. And so someone says, well, he didn't raise from the dead. He, you know, the disciples stole the body. Right, which was the lie that was told around Jerusalem, spread by the religious leaders, because they had no greater, they had nothing. No body could be produced. Right. And so the lie that was spread was, well, the disciples stole the body. Except that is, that's just pure insanity. The disciples, first of all, they didn't even believe that he rose from the dead. The disciples are in hiding. They fled from Jesus at his arrest. They're terrified for their own lives, right? This is why Peter was so quick to deny Jesus. But after Jesus raises from the dead and appears to them on multiple occasions, they turn the world upside down. They become fearless proclaimers of the gospel, calling the Jews who just crucified Jesus and who will crucify them if they get their way to repent and believe the good news. And they look them in the face and they say... You crucified him. And then some of the Jews are pierced by that. They see that they have pierced the Lord of glory. And they say, what then shall we do? And the Apostle Peter says, repent. Repent. And many are saved. And the the church just explodes through Jerusalem and then beyond. How do you get these guys who are terrified and unbelieving hiding away in the upper room to fearless preachers of the gospel? They have an encounter with the risen Jesus on numerous occasions and their uh, unbelief they repent of and they trust their risen Lord and they serve Him. That's how. Because Jesus was really raised from the dead. No, 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 no. It's, all of that is fantastical. The women went to the wrong tomb, and, that's, and Peter went to the wrong tomb, and they, they couldn't... All of this is silly. They could just go to the right tomb and get the body. Jesus was really raised from the dead. Now, if you're a skeptic, if you're a skeptic of these things, I want you to know, I once was a skeptic of these things. 
I once thought they were foolish and silly. I just want you to know I'm glad that you're here. And I would encourage you to look into these things because you have to decide to do what you will do and decide about the one who was raised from the dead. And one who has raised from the dead and claimed to be raised from the dead is something you should put some effort into searching and understanding. You know, if you need something to read, read, read the book, Who Moved the Stone? Or just read the gospel accounts and see who Jesus is. And what happened in his cross and resurrection. But don't do this. Don't be lazy in deciding about Jesus. Fine. If it takes you a little time, fine. But don't be lazy. If you have to set out to prove that what everything the scripture says is whack, you go for it. You go for it if you have to. But don't be lazy in just making up some thought about Jesus and not actually studying what does the historical record actually tell us in Scripture about Jesus. You have to do with Him. And you must decide. There is no more well-attested fact in ancient history than Jesus rising from the dead. None. Now, men will believe there are many facts more well-attested to, but they'll take anything as true in history except when it comes to Jesus. Now, church, we have to think about this. We are so often like the disciples, aren't we, when it comes to the resurrection? And even though the resurrection is true, even though the resurrection is true, what do we do? We evaluate God's providence in our lives, His providence to us as if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. We evaluate the fearful thing ahead of us as if we don't have a Lord who's actually risen from the dead. We evaluate the current state of our marriages or our singleness and what we're unhappy about as if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. We think through an unbelieving grid as if Jesus were still in the tomb. As if the lie the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin told was true. We condemn ourselves and we listen to the condemnations of the evil one. When we sin... And we think we must not be saved except we're living as if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Raised for your justification, Romans chapter 1. Spurgeon recounts in volume 38 of his works, his completed works, he recounts a story of Luther, which some of you may i have told before years ago, some of you will remember, but this is what he says. How does he know this? What is his source? I'm not sure, but it's a great story. He says this, Martin Luther was a very cheerful man, as a rule. But he had terrible fits of depression. I assume this actually meant a lot to Spurgeon 
um, because Spurgeon had terrible fits of depression. He was at one time so depressed that his friends recommended him to go away for a change of air to see if he could get relief. He went away, but he came home as miserable as ever. And when he went into the sitting room, his wife, Kate, or his dear Katie, Catherine Von Bora, was sitting there, dressed in black. And her children round about her, all in black. Oh, oh, said Luther, who is dead? Why, said she, doctor, have not you heard that God is dead? My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust to. My husband, Martin Luther, would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust to. Then he burst into a hearty laugh and said, Kate, thou art a wise woman. I have been acting as if God were dead and I will do so no more. Go and take off thy black. Oh, foolish one, slow, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, right? Life is miserable thinking and functioning like Jesus is dead. Life is miserable functioning and thinking like Jesus is dead. So I want you to do this. I want you to treasure the resurrection. I mean, you realize how much is different in the nature of reality in this world and in your life because Jesus is raised from the dead. Your sanctification, your progress in the faith, those things, that, those things in your life you think will never be different and never change that we all have. Obedience can grow and sin can be overcome because the power of the resurrection is alive in you by God's Spirit. You actually have hope for your change. So don't be faithless for your change. Like Jesus is still dead. Or the the condemnations of the evil one can really be put to rest because you can say, Jesus is raised from the dead. He was raised for my justification. And what you say, devil, is not true because Jesus has forgiven it all. He's removed my transgressions as far as the east is from the west. And I'm not who you say I am. I'm who the risen Jesus says I am. And by the way, he crushed your skull. And so I trust him more than I believe you. Where are you going to find the strength, right, through endless conflict and strife in the Christian life? Where are you going to find strength for endurance if Jesus is dead? But if Jesus is raised, then you have the strength you need from the risen Christ himself. You have the power of the resurrection to endure in the middle of conflict. As Christ himself did unto death. You can have hope for people around you to grow and change. 
People around you, your spouse can grow and change. Your children can grow and change. The power of the resurrection means that your children are probably going to be a little bit different in five years and ten years and twenty years than they might be today. Because Jesus actually is alive and risen from the dead and promised to complete the good work He began in them just as He promised to complete the good work He began in you. You actually apply the resurrection to looking at people around you. All you do is be patient and let God's Spirit do its work. His work. You can actually trust God with your life. You can actually trust God with your life. And you have a very trustworthy Lord to trust in because He's one who raises from the dead. Who else is that trustworthy? You can actually trust Him with your life. And you can actually trust Him with His providence in your life. And you can live for the life to come and not settle for this world because Christ is now there and He's raised you up with, up with Him in heaven, and seated you with Him in heavenly places so that this world doesn't have to have all your hearts and hopes and you don't have to worship the creation is the way of life anymore. You can worship the Creator and give thanks to Him and live for the life that is to come where you are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. So sure as if it's already happened. Because Christ is raised from the dead, your trials, your trials are merely temporary. Christ has overcome the world, and you will overcome the world also. You have hope now that the trial is not being wasted because Christ is actually working on your heart and life in the middle of all of it, purifying your faith, changing your heart, building character in you, and hope that these momentary, that these afflictions, these light momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. You have hope of an eternal home the sojourning and pilgrimage wandering that we're all on right now, but Jesus is long went ahead of us, raised to go and prepare a place for us, just as he told us. You have hope that when sorrow accompanies you all the day, that it's actually a Jesus who's alive, who Psalm 56 is holding your tears in a bottle today, right now. You have hope that he actually is shepherding your soul to himself because he's alive. I mean, just tell yourself. You have to treasure the resurrection. Actually, tell yourself. Right? This is what's true because Jesus rose from the dead. This is how, then, I must live because Jesus rose from the dead. You have to tell yourself these things about Jesus or you will maintain the merely sorrowfulness of the disciples and sadness in unbelief. You will walk through the road of life, you know, metaphorically speaking, of the road to Emmaus, and you will just be sad as if Jesus is still in the tomb. Jesus is alive, and you have to apply the resurrection. And how to know if you're treasuring the resurrection is if the resurrection actually enters your real life and you think about your life and what's happening in your life and the people around you's life through the lens of Jesus is risen from the dead. What does that tell me about this? 
You know, there's sadness in verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And of course, then Jesus gives one of the best sermons ever given on the Old Testament. You know, or the best sermon, I should say, ever given on the Old Testament. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, verse 25. All that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus really died and Jesus was really raised. Having proven it, I want you to treasure it. And then I just want to say this, Jesus is the center of all of the Bible's teaching. He's the center of all of the Bible's teaching. And I wish I could have heard him give that sermon on the prophets. But I have an Old Testament. And I have God's spirit. And I have the help of the church for the last 2,000 years. I, I don't have to have had this ser- heard this sermon to understand the Old Testament is all about Jesus. But you have to think about your Bible. You have to think about the whole Bible is like the solar system revolving around the sun. And the whole Bible is revolves around Jesus. The whole thing. But still, I wish I would have been a fly on the wall to hear Jesus expound the Old Testament concerning himself. But a few things that you should know that I just wrote down as I was thinking about it. When you think about Jesus, he is the last Adam victorious over temptation where Adam failed in the garden, leading all the many who believe in him to everlasting life and ending the curse of death. Jesus is the sacrifice, Adam and Eve's covering. Jesus is the true sacrifice that covers all of our shame, that covers all of our nakedness. In Genesis chapter 3, And in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is the royal seed, the kingly seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's skull. You realize, now you haven't been told this for some reason, but it's just what the Bible teaches. Satan's power in this world is far less now than what it was before the cross and the resurrection. Jesus actually crushed the serpent's skull. It doesn't mean that he's not still the prince of the power of the air. It doesn't mean that he's not still at work in the world. But look at the world. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing over them in him. Something changed. The whole world now has heard the gospel. That wasn't the case before. He's the true and better Isaac. Right? Remember, Abraham had hoped that Isaac would be raised from the dead if he was sacrificed. Right? But Jesus actually was sacrificed and was raised from the dead. And to us, he is the ram in the thicket who was sacrificed in our place so that we could be spared. 
I'm only in Genesis 22. We've got a long way to go. Jesus is the Lord over Pharaoh, at war with Pharaoh. And the true and great, and the deliverer greater than Moses, leading his people in an exodus, not just from Egypt, but from sin and the domain of darkness into righteousness and eternal life and a new creation. Jesus is the final and ultimate priestly sacrifice in Leviticus. Right, who takes away the sins of his people by his own blood forever. Jesus is the true tabernacle of God because in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in the book of Exodus. Right Now, you have to think about this right because you've been taught wrong. What you think is, is kind of, God kind of gave all these like pictures in the Old Testament to help us understand Jesus when he came. And that is partially true, but it's not the whole truth. What you have to understand is those things are actually all derived from Christ Himself to be shadows of Christ Himself put there to see who Christ is. It wasn't like Christ was patterned after all of these things. They are the thing that are patterned from Him. He is the substance and they're the shadow of kind of the shadow that that is cast from Him through all of Old Testament and world history. From Him are all things. He didn't come from all of those things to be the perfect match for them. Everything came from Him to be a shadow of Him. And He is the substance. He's the great high priest in Leviticus who enters the veil as a forerunner for us. Not, not, and not into tabernacles made with human hands, but into the very throne room of God He goes before us and brings us with Him. In Numbers, Jesus is the true manna from heaven, the bread of life. And He's the living water that satisfies the thirst of every heart that longs for Him. In Deuteronomy, he's both the lawgiver and the one who perfectly keeps the law and gives all of the blessings of the law to his people because he kept it for them. Joshua, he is the better Savior who leads his people into a better and abiding promised land. In Judges, he is the spirit-anointed deliverer of his people and the king whose law reigns so that no one no longer does what is right in their own eyes. In Samuel, Jesus is the son of David and God the son who is king of kings. In Ruth, Jesus redeems his people from their bitter estate in this world. I long for some of you to know Jesus in such a way that You know him as the Redeemer who redeems you from your bitter estate in this world and anoints you with the oil of gladness. In Proverbs, Jesus is wisdom personified. 
And he is, it's he who we run to when we first fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We run to the person of wisdom, Jesus. So much more could be said in Ecclesiastes. Jesus is the center of all meaning to life. In the Psalms, he is the person of our worship, and so many things are said in the Psalms about Jesus. In the prophets, he must suffer. The suffering servant of Isaiah is Jesus. He's also the restorer of the world to a greater than an Edenic paradise. And in the prophets, he is the judge who will destroy the wicked in the last day. I could go on and on and on. about. I haven't even mentioned tons of things in Genesis that Jesus is. You know, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What in the world is that about? going to go into that right now, but I just haven't mentioned so much of what could be said of how the whole Old Testament, and not just what's, not, it's, it's not just something recorded on a page. This is the movement of the providence of God in history, in the history of the world, to reveal the glory of His Son. The whole history of the world to reveal the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ, the One who must suffer and be raised from the dead. So, I'll stop there. But Merry Christmas. Stand with me.